The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. While promoting her groundbreaking role in HBO's smash hit Westworld... Actress Evan Rachel Wood revealed a painful truth about her past. She'd been raped and physically abused by a former intimate partner while they were together. After years of speculation about the identity of her alleged perpetrator, Evan revealed that it was Brian Warner, famously known as controversial rocker Marilyn Manson. Evan was just 18 when they began dating. He was 37. Throughout their tumultuous relationship, Evan says she was tortured, threatened, and terrified for her life. She's testified to Congress and played a key role in changing California law. She championed the Phoenix Act, which extends the statute of limitations for domestic violence survivors. On this episode of Navigating Narcissism, Evan shares how she escaped her alleged abuser, the actress who encouraged her to open up for the first time, and how she's found healing. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse and suicide, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. Evan, I can't thank you enough for coming in and talking with me. Your perspective as a survivor is remarkable in and of itself, but you also use your platform to change laws. And that is such an important part of your story. And for us to learn from your journey of survivorship, to me, that's the focus of the story. So to that end, I want to hear from you and you can start talking about what's happened to you anywhere you want to begin. (laughs) I almost want to start 
after the abuse mm -hmm. and my experience with narcissism in the aftermath, because I remember going through a lot of that thinking, we don't talk about this enough. We don't talk about how this feels. You know, when you hear those things like, why didn't you say anything sooner? Mm -hmm. Why didn't you respond this way? Or why didn't you do that? Or why didn't you do this? It just suddenly becomes so clear when you've sat in that space why it just took me so many years to feel like I was capable enough or strong enough or clear enough about what had happened to me to be able to face what I knew I was going to be up mm -hmm. against. I started speaking about my sexual assault sort of right before the big internet Me Too hashtag movement yeah. happened. And around that time, my nervous system and my stress and the weight of it all became so intense that I started a seizure. I started having mm -hmm. stress mm -hmm. seizures. Mm -hmm. And when I realized just what a physical impact this was having on me and it was making it nearly impossible to just move about my life normally and comfortably mm -hmm. and safely. That was such a breaking point for me. That's when I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to stay quiet. I realized that my silence was keeping me really sick. I always believe that we always, always should lose names and terms that survivors are comfortable with. How do you refer to this person? I refer to him as Brian. He is the one that created the name Marilyn Manson, and he was the one that told us all to call him Manson. But to me, that kind of feels like a cult leader asking you to call them Papa or Vanguards, <laughs> yeah. like this title that he's giving himself to fit whatever image he has of himself. And I didn't want to give him that power anymore. And so mm -hmm. I just use his real name, Brian. Okay. So I want to go back to a couple of things you said, is yeah. that there's a way we think a survivor is supposed to respond. When you think of it that way, I think it would be useful to, for people to hear what a trope that thing is. What was in your mind sort of how one is supposed to respond when they're a survivor of sexual assault or any form of trauma? There's this idea that something bad happens to you. You know it's bad. You immediately react and you immediately respond or defend yourself. Right. And it's just cut and dry, black and white. Mm -hmm. This is good. This is mm -hmm. bad. And if something feels bad, then you should say something or something. But it just completely erases <laughs> so much yeah. of the human experience and of the psychological manipulation and torment that you go through, especially when you're dealing with a narcissist and especially when it's an intimate partner. And there's so many other dynamics coming into play. I was faced with a lot of the narcissistic abuse I suffered, I was a teenager. I was mm -hmm. so ill-equipped. My brain wasn't even really done no, forming. it wasn't. I, I was just speaking to somebody the other day, and they said, well, surely, you know, when you're raped and you go to the police, something happens, and they come after the person, and I had to stop them and just say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I'm not whoa. sure what happy There's a million other steps, yeah, that come into yeah. play here before this happens. But people have this idea that people just come and take the bad guy away if somebody did mm -hmm. something bad, and... When I say things like the system is corrupt, that means the laws, that means the courts, that means yeah. lawyers, that means law enforcement. A lot of times as a survivor, if there's there's no easy way out. If a person doesn't say something, Evan, especially in proximity to the thing that happened, the belief is, well, maybe it wasn't that bad because they're not. So if a bad thing you happens, would have said something right we away. would have said something right away, right? So that's a complete disregard of everything we know about trauma systems in the brain and in the body and how healing works. Then you add the historical context that most survivors of rape and sexual assault 
are not believed. And that not believing gets magnified under a whole host of circumstances. Were you drinking? Did you go there voluntarily? The race of the person making the report, Mm -hmm. the social class of the person making the report, all of those things undercut the likelihood that this will ever be taken seriously, which is a Mm re-traumatization, which will put a person back even further. And so the entire system is conspired against anybody feeling that they could safely make a report. And so there was a process for you before you were able to come out and speak. And I think people need to understand it wasn't that something terrible happened on a Wednesday and by the following Wednesday or the day after you spoke up. Because when you first spoke out, you did not even name your perpetrator. You simply said this happened. So starting the story there that I finally spoke out. Yeah. Okay. So then what? Or just like finally getting out and at first just wanting to, the first step was finally made it out. I convinced him that it was his idea to let me go because that's Mm. essentially what Mm -hmm. I felt Mm -hmm. like I had to do. I really Mm -hmm. had to Mm -hmm. study him for years and understand his gaslighting and manipulation. And I just knew that I was never going to get out if I was pulling away from him or if it was my choice to escape, I had to somehow play dead and give him something that was undesirable to make him feel like it was his idea to let me go. How did you do that? There was a moment when I felt like I'm so afraid of this person. I've been threatened so many times, either with you know blackmail or with force. And if I stay here because I'm too scared to leave, I feel like I'm dead anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like a human. I don't, Mm -hmm. I feel like a shell of a person. And staying kind of felt like a death sentence. Yeah. Leaving also felt terrifying because something could happen to me or he could come after me. And so I kind of felt like, well, either way, I feel dead. So I may as well try to escape. Mm -hmm. I'd rather die trying to get out. Then I remember realizing that a lot of what he fed off of was my fear that he was going to do something. Mm -hmm. Like that was Mm -hmm. the power that he had over me. Mm -hmm. I could embarrass you. I've got information on you. I've got photos of you. I've got you doing things that would humiliate you. When that finally clicked, I released any sense of trying to have any control over the situation and just kind of surrendered to what the situation was. was just, look, if you stay, you're dead. If you leave, you're dead. So I didn't really fight back. I didn't really react or seem hurt. I kind of just went, I think they call it going gray rock. Okay, so I want to break that down. Yeah. Gray rocking is that process where you render yourself to be a gray rock, as dull, as non-responsive, yes. as unnoticeable. As so when you're not responding either with fear or trying to appease them or trying to get into it with them or explain mm-hmm. yourself, the goal is that they would get disinterested and move on to new supply. Gray rock's a tricky strategy because in many cases what it can do is it leaves the narcissistic person unsupplied and they get more agitated. And their power over you is to get these strong, emotional, almost erratic reactions out of the person they're targeting. This is now psychological, right? Mm -hmm. They will get more frothed up. Okay, you think you're going to play this game? I am going to share those pictures with the world. 
it, it now, which they did. It, which they do. And so what happens is if you can tolerate the menace and you can come around the other side of the bend, they will ultimately get bored. Mm -hmm. Because now it's just sort of they're exhausting themselves in the process of trying to break someone. They could just move on to new supply. Yeah. But a lot of people cannot weather that sort of gray rock agitation, yeah. as I call it. But in your case, you did gray rock. And how did that get you to the place, though, where it, it felt like his idea that this was no longer working. Well, exactly what you just described. I wasn't trying to defend myself. I wasn't trying to talk him off the ledge. I wasn't doing all the things that I normally did. And one thing he was doing with me as well is that reactive abuse where he would sort of push me to the point of breakdown where I'd either be having a panic attack, I'd be shaking, I'd be screaming, I'd want to reach out for help. And then he would tell people something else was happening, mm -hmm. like anybody like in his inner circles. One time he told somebody that I slipped my wrist to get his attention or, oh, that I cheated on him. or Like he just kept telling people all these things had happened that weren't happening to set me up. If I ever did reach out for help, if I ever did try to explain to people what was happening, they've already heard a completely different story. Mm -hmm, like he's mm -hmm, already mm -hmm, gotten ahead mm -hmm. of it. I made this mistake with a couple of narcissists in my life before I knew they were narcissists. Mm -hmm of if I could just show this person yeah. how much pain I'm in, they'll stop because right, right, I'm right. dying. I'm yeah. collapsed on yep. the floor. I'm in a pool of tears. Mm -hmm. I'm pulling my hair mm -hmm. out. I'm screaming. I'm cutting myself. Mm -hmm. I'm clearly in pain. And, mm -hmm. and of course they'll stop. And they never do. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. They use it to their advantage even more. But when there's yeah. no empathy, all no. the rules are out the no. window, right? See, that's the piece. What you described is I would show them my pain. I would fall to the ground in my pain in the ex yeah. expectation. And not in a performative no, way, no. in a like genuine, you're genuine way. Like, way. This you're is devastated. how I'm feeling. Yes, yes yeah. you're devastated. Yeah, and yeah. What happens is that when a person goes through any form of narcissistic or psychopathic or antagonistic relationship where there's so much invalidation, there's so little empathy, you're not having that fall-to-the-ground panicked, distressed response the first time. Mm -hmm. This is after hundreds of times of being exposed to this, right? It's relentless. relentless. And so there's a point at which it's unendurable and that you think that within this person, I saw it for a minute at the beginning. I know it's there. Maybe they're not seeing how much pain I'm in and they will see how much pain I'm in. Maybe they're not fully getting it. Maybe they just think this is an exchange. It's really complete and utter exhaustion and breakdown. Yes. That's just game on for them. Exactly. That's what I learned through trial and error. Yes. That, Evan, is the norm. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important you laid this dynamic out because that's every survivor's sort of mantle they wear. Maybe I'm not being clear. And if I was clear, they'd get it because that's the hope. That's the trauma bond. When you started gray rocking, did you experience the escalation I was talking about? Yes. That you did. So you were holding back and then the escalation. Yes. And what did that look like? So at one point, he was threatening to go over to somebody's house that I knew. And, and I was scared, but... I also knew him well enough at that point. First of all, he doesn't have a driver's license because <laughs> he gets everybody to do everything for mm -hmm. him. So I was like, well, first of all, you, you don't drive. You're not going to go anywhere. But I remember him getting dressed, saying he was going to go to this person's house, and it was very threatening. He was demanding the address, and I just didn't react. I just kept saying, okay, yep, yeah, if that's what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And they ended up not doing anything and not going anywhere. And that was sort of the first kind of call their bluff yes. thing. Yes. And then... I wouldn't laugh at their jokes. Like, they were always incredibly inappropriate. And one of the ways they really tested the people around them and incriminated them in things was by, you know, 
there was sort of a code of conduct for how you needed to act. Rule number one was always just keep him happy and keep things de-escalated. And one way to do that was just laughing at the terrible jokes, joining in with things that were highly inappropriate. You can feel like, yeah, I'm on your side. I'm trustworthy because I'm joining in with you. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to come after me because I'm sort of being just as disgusting. And after a while, I was like, mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. And so I stopped. And I stopped performing in front of people, which was a big a big thing, too. What do you mean by performing in front so of people? So, like, people would come to the house, usually, like, a famous person or somebody that he needed to do a job. It was either um, status or servitude. The only That's way he really would interact with people is if he was getting one of these two things mm-hmm. out of the relationship. Mm-hmm. He didn't just have friends that he hung yeah. out with, that he connected with, that we just enjoy each yeah. other's company. There's an exchange here. I'm getting something from yeah. this. And so it was always a big deal when someone came to the house because— It was almost like a show. It was like we had to put on a show for these people. And he liked having me around, I think, because I brought some status. I could wait on them, bring out drinks and do these things. And it made him seem very powerful. And if you did things wrong, you would hear about it when the people left. So everything would be fine when the people were there. You would act like we've got this great relationship Sometimes he would say demeaning things or do something, and literally sometimes it would be so horrible that the guests would think he was kidding. Yeah, And they would lean yeah, over to me right. and they would say, he's, he's kidding though, right? And I would just sort of have to shrug and look at them like, no, but I can't say anything because he's right there and right. I'm going to hear about it later. It's what I call sort of the dinner party paradox of the narcissistic yeah. relationship, right? Oh, this is, this is, they're great. Like, you guys are great I've together. seen you this guys great together. I've never guys. seen anything like that. And yeah, people don't see it. the door closes. And the other place this happens in a pronounced way is in cars. Mm. The event is done. You're in the car and the gloves come off and you can't or get out of a car. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, a car is the worst because if this thing's hurtling down the freeway at 70 miles an hour, there's no getting out. That moment is such a signature move in any narcissistic relationship, which means then, as the evenings going on, there is this sense of dread that overwhelms you and completely clench when you're thinking, did I say that wrong? Did I? You're walking on eggshells. This is shards of glass. Shards of glass. At this point, eggshells left the room a long time ago, right? But you know what's coming because there's no way you would have hit every beat perfectly because you can't read someone else's mind. No. They're looking for something too. I remember one time I got in trouble because I gave the guests water when they arrived, but I gave them to them in plastic bottles instead of glasses. And it turned into like being up all night just getting berated and yelled at about how you either don't care or you're making them look bad or this is how things need to be when people show up and here's what needs to change. And just like the constant criticism, the constant, it doesn't matter what you do, they are going to find something. It's a game you cannot win. And they're just going to keep moving the goalposts and they're just going to keep upping the ante to keep you destabilized and apologizing and constantly trying to please them so that you're not looking at the horrible things that they're doing. And God forbid you ever try to, like, call them out or turn it around on them. I just just knew not to do that. Evan, you're talking about you translating into gray rock. How much of it at that point, though, was a frank trauma response? So what you're doing, you know I what I'm saying? I think most of it, yeah. You know, it it, it so, wasn't even necessarily a conscious thing. No. That's what I'm hearing. It's not even the intentionality that Grey Rock can sometimes I didn't imply. know Grey Rock was a you thing. You didn't know what it was a thing, yeah. right? So what you were experiencing was dissociation yeah. and numbness. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the most severe levels of narcissistic abuse, that definitely was what your experience was. It is traumatic. You start getting into the territory of complex trauma, of severe relationships relational trauma. And 
at that point, a person is now dissociated. They're numb. It's like the soul has left the body kind of thing. Actually, in in a way, they've annexed you. You're done. Like it's a yeah. horrifying sense of disposability as though they've emptied out the bottle. That's and exactly no how it felt. Mm-hmm. It just felt like he's kind of pawing at me while I lay on the ground like, oh, I think this one's done. Yes. Yes. And then I definitely noticed him getting bored with me. And then I got a part in a movie and that's what got me out of the house. He still tried to call me a few times after that, but I got the nerve to hang up on him and change my number. And normally he would just keep calling and keep finding ways around that. But that last time after I changed my number, he seemed to sort of fall back yeah. and move yeah. on to the next supply. Okay. All right. So, which I'm sure he already had in the chamber, you know, there always is there somebody always is. in these yes. relationships. Yes. In 2009, Brian told Spin Magazine that the day after he and Evan broke up, he called her 158 times. He was quoted as saying, I have fantasies every day about smashing her skull in with a sledgehammer, a comment his team later characterized as, quote, obviously a theatrical rock star interview promoting a new record and not a factual account. And it's always the same sort of pattern of, you know, the new supply comes in. He lets her know that the supply he currently has is crazy and yes. is mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. hurting his spirit mm-hmm. and doesn't understand him and is yeah. very controlling. And we have to hide our relationship because they're so right. erratic. Yes. So let's yes. keep doing yes. this in secrecy mm-hmm. while I try to get yep. the crazy mm-hmm. one out. Mm-hmm. That was his MO. I would say that that must be on like page 32 of, of the, the narcissism, narcissism relationship yeah, manual. Yeah, exactly. It's because textbook. it's the now that that person's gone, it is getting ahead of it. If you yeah. were to ever speak to the person, not only have you been painted as though there's something wrong with you, it's an opportunity to sort of elevate the new partner who feels as though, well, I'm going to show you how sane I am. I'm going to show you how savory, rescuey, great. How fortunate are you? Isn't it good that you got rid of that person? I'm going to be so much better Better. than that person. I understand you way more. Yeah. Yeah. You said something before, though, that did jump out to me. The language you used was fascinating. You said you would get in trouble if you did something wrong, you know, bring the water in the wrong cup. First of all, in no healthy human relationship, child or adult, should anyone ever feel that they were going to get in trouble? A child shouldn't feel that they're going to get in trouble. They might feel like, I know mom told me not to do this. It could be a consequence mm-hmm. or something. It was get in trouble, the gotcha. There's a gotcha feel to every narcissistic relationship. It's also infantilizing, Evan, that I'm going to get in trouble. That's very much a child's statement, right? So these relationships are designed to leave a person feeling as disempowered as a child would exactly. in a relationship. And it's knowing that something painful is coming. Correct. Too. It's Correct. like you know that whatever's coming is really going to hurt. It's really going to hurt. Yes. And that's terrifying. It is. Yeah. While testifying in front of Congress, Evan explained the painful punishments she experienced, saying she was tied up by her hands and feet, beaten, and told by her abuser, quote, I could kill you right now. Here's the thing I want to really talk about is you were only 19 when this relationship began. 18 when it started. Okay, 18. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to use child feels a little heavy handed, though, adolescent. Yes. And this beautiful brain of ours is kind of rocking and rolling to you like somewhere between 25 and 30. Mm -hmm. A lot of innervating still happening in this frontal lobe. It's the last part of the turkey to cook, which is why we see adolescents are, you know, kind of sometimes all over the map. Yeah. And impulsive and. 
I don't mean this word to mean like dismissive, but to me, you were a child in many ways. Uh, absolutely. And so to the verbiage and the power and the control, you were 18 years old. What age were you when the relationship ended? 22. Okay, so four years. And in that whole period of time, 18 to 22, this never got done. This, this, oh, this I felt was still, completely yeah. stunted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so much catching up to do afterwards. Mm-hmm. I felt like I fell so far behind on life skills and communication mm-hmm. skills and relationship skills. And, and that was another thing that was really hard to navigate after getting out was having to play catch up and feeling like my peers had passed me and not knowing how to function. And there's grief around that. Oh, so much grief. I mean, I grieved like the person I was before the abuse. And mm-hmm. I hear this a lot with survivors of this kind of abuse. It was hard for me to watch films that I had done from before. It was hard for me to look at photographs. Mm -hmm. I think also because one of their goals was to make sure I felt terrible about myself and that I felt inadequate and broken. Mm -hmm. And they would tell me constantly like that I was broken and no one was ever going to love me after this. And after he was done with me, no one was going to love me or touch me or, you know, take me seriously. And this is one of the reasons why I tried to kill myself before the very end of our relationship because I didn't know how to get back to baseline or where I was. Not Mm -hmm. even saying like I was the healthiest person, but nowhere near where I was. So I at one point felt like the only way through it was to die because I didn't know how to get myself back. The grief around who you were, what was lost, what your life should have been, should have looked like. I felt like my life was supposed to have a very different trajectory. And the realization of what happened to you, the more I learned about it, the more grief comes with it. Because when you read a textbook about domestic violence or about narcissism and you think these things that have happened to you are so unique and have kept you so isolated from people for so long. And then you you start reading about it and the realization of how common it is and all of these red flags that maybe had you known or could have looked out for or maybe was well educated about. Maybe you could have seen it, but... There's also a part of me that just thinks everybody's susceptible to this. Everybody is because, with some exceptions, but very few, human beings are oriented towards attachment and love. And I think that I'm sort of on an anti-red flag crusade. Really? Yes, because I think it's an unsafe framing. Mm. Because when we make it about red flags, we're putting the onus on the survivor of why didn't you see it? Right. Versus this is unacceptable behavior, right? Right. And then to let people know that when the unacceptable behavior descends into something where you've already started to form what feels like a meaningful attachment, resting your way out of this is not something you can do alone. You need either someone to throw you the life ring or to pull you out because that's a big, big leap to frame it that way. No 18-year-old on the planet is going to be able to manage that. Most 48-year-olds on the planet are not able to manage it. And it's interesting because I do talk a lot about people say, who is more vulnerable? Who's more susceptible? Are there things that can stack the odds? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, like I think they say like most domestic violence crimes, like the highest rates are between the ages of 16 and 24 because that's when you're... Absolutely. You know, you're a child in an adult's Mm -hmm. body at that point. It's things like, yes, certainly things like having a history of trauma, having a history of narcissistic relationships in your life. But we can even pivot to things like being really positive, 
Seeing, yeah, seeing the, the good, good in everyone. Yeah. <laughs> that was definitely you me. You know, being very forgiving, yeah. being a rescuer, seeing something in someone that you feel the rest of the world is not seeing. 100%. And then you also have to account for things like being less empowered in a system or culture or society because of race, mm-hmm. because of lack of financial support, because of lack of family support. That also almost the privilege of detecting a red flag is taken away from you. Right. Right. Then... On top of all of this, you throw in that this narcissistic person is charismatic, compelling, charming, smart, and often the reason they grab us is because for us in particular, there may be something about this person that jumped out of us. When you take all of that and shake it up, the milkshake you're pouring out of there is dangerous and toxic and confusing. Mm-hmm. And there was a time you truly cared about this person. Oh, that's the time that's the hardest to mm-hmm. think about or talk about, yeah. really. It's really the hardest part yeah. to access because it's so hard to imagine now. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad to think about and what I thought I felt. And that's the scariest part. Because for me, it wasn't just about like trusting other people. It was trusting myself again Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of people are like oh I ignored my gut feeling or I ignored red flags but sometimes you don't see red flags you don't have a gut feeling everything feels fine like you feel completely safe I really felt like I was lucky to be there and I was being really taken care of and Mm -hmm. I was being saved and in the beginning they were careful with me they were Mm -hmm. slow with me they really Mm -hmm. like they took their time to establish a sense of trust and Mm -hmm. safety Mm and vulnerability. It took a while for things to really escalate. Okay. So how old was he when he met you? He was 37. He was 18 years older than me. Okay. So he was 18 years older than you. I'm still not the age that he was. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Let's just sit with that for a minute. Yeah. You are still not the age that he was. As you approach that age, 37, and you witness what 18 looks like in the world. This just happened to me, actually. My little sister just turned 18. Wow. And I spent a day with her and a friend of hers that I was around the same age. And that is all I could think of all day was, yes, she is so smart and beautiful and intelligent, but she's a child. Mm-hmm. That's a child. That's a child. She's still so vulnerable and innocent. And that doesn't mean I don't have respect for her and think that she's not smart. But Yes, it was so apparent to me that day just how vulnerable I was at that age. And imagining somebody like Brian, imagining her in his clutches, you know, it helped paint a better picture for me, too, of why so many people were, their alarm bells were going off Mm -hmm. back in the day. Mm -hmm. But I was already set up to really just not trust the adults around me anymore. Why was that? Brian definitely put that in my head from the beginning, I think, because... I had struggled a bit in the entertainment industry with feeling a bit controlled, Mm -hmm, feeling stifled, mm -hmm. feeling like I had to behave and act a certain way to be loved or to be liked. And it didn't always feel authentic. And I think I felt a little trapped Mm -hmm. and I was struggling with that. That was part of the allure of being in his world. It just seemed like a place where you were free of judgment and it was all about expression and being exactly who you are. The part of me that wanted to feel like I was a part of some sort of noble cause, like he felt like really trying to change people's way Mm -hmm. of thinking in the world and... It felt like I was a part of something really special and really great. The part of myself that, yeah, that was a little like, 
no, things need to be shaken up and fuck the establishment. This is rebellious art, is, you know, sort of how sure. it felt. And he was capitalizing on a developmental chasm. Yeah. The chasm between 18 and 37, let's fast forward that, is very different than the chasm between 60 and 79. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Right? Age differences aren't linear. Those gaps go steep and less steep depending on how old we are. But that is a chasm. And at 18 to his 37, that's grooming. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about he was very careful with you in the beginning. That carefulness, that drawing you in, subsequently creating trust and engagement. To me, there's no other word but grooming that could be applied there. Yeah, grooming and love bombing. And I would say the love bombing is part of the grooming. How long did this sort of careful period last before his behavior started to shift and change? Well, before anything even romantic happened, it was at least a few months of just hanging out and being friends mm, and mm-hmm. nothing feeling off or mm-hmm. weird. And everybody was like, what's going on between the two of you? And I was like, there's literally nothing going mm-hmm. on. Like, everybody's freaking out over nothing. He's never tried anything with me, you know? And I, I was almost offended that mm-hmm. <laughs> people mm-hmm. would ask that. And also at the time, I viewed myself as a child. I felt very young mm-hmm. and sort of in over my head, but kind of special to be chosen. And maybe there was something special about me that only he saw and that everybody else was missing because that is kind of how I felt in my life. So yes, it was a few months and then things sort of turned romantic. And I remember just being shocked because I didn't understand why he was attracted to me. I just felt like Mm -hmm. I never thought there was even a chance that that could happen. Mm -hmm. I was like, this Mm -hmm. is like some older rock star who's also like married and can Mm -hmm. have anybody he wants. And I'm like this kind of weird, awkward, young kid, essentially, Mm -hmm. that's just kind of a nerd. And then I think at the time how I made sense of it was like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm really mature for my age and I'm actually really soulful and age doesn't really matter. And I'm like a fluke. I didn't know that there were possibly other minors At the time, I didn't know that. In retrospect, especially when I found out about the alleged minors that have come forward and looking at the timeline, and then this moment of realization of not only did you never know this person, never, like the second he said hello to you, it wasn't real, but he picked you because you were young. He picked you because you were a child. He picked you because you were flat-chested. There's certain things that I looked back and thought, These are things he's looking past to be with me. And then Mm. in retrospect, it was, no, this is why you were chosen. And that Mm. was like a huge Mm. switch that got flipped. And my narrative had to change. When did you come into that realization that instead of these were things that were being looked past, these were actually reasons I was being chosen for? Because to be chosen for those reasons is actually much more pathologic and unsettling, right? When, you know, stories started popping up on the Internet, again, you know, I have to say alleged, people started saying this happened to me and I was this age, mm, mm, here's mm-hmm. when it happened, mm-hmm. that knocked me down so hard because I think before that I was still trying to convince myself that maybe there were horrible things that had happened, but maybe there were good things in between, or maybe we mm. had moments of clarity or moments of real connection or moments of real love and sprinkled into that were just this devastation. And then when I found that out and I realized that he was leading a double life, essentially, and that there was a whole other side to him that I never knew existed, Mm -hmm. then everything feels like a violation at that point. Completely different. Again, now we're back to the grief. Yeah. Because you're grieving a thing you thought was. And I think this is one of the big struggles in narcissistic relationships. Because when you use that grief framework, 
a lot of people say, what? Like, no one's dead. What are you talking about? You had a relationship and it's done. And it wasn't what it was. That's the problem. And so you're even grieving that you were in something you thought was something and it wasn't that something. It's very, very unsettling because you really, truly believed it was this other thing. But then you start questioning everything. We will be right back with this conversation. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You question everything. So what happens with accumulated gaslighting is that you actually start to feel psychotic, is that you're oh, no yeah. <laughs> longer in reality, right? It's funny. There were a couple of projects that I did before coming forward that shook things up. It was like it shook something loose in my mm-hmm. psyche that had been sort of like yeah. calcified mm-hmm. and buried away. Mm-hmm. And the first one was when I had to do like a pretty brutal sexual assault scene in a film called Into the Forest. And that was the first mm-hmm. day that I started questioning some of the things that had happened to me and that they were possibly assault. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't even say that I was raped for many, many, many years after the mm-hmm. fact. Like it wouldn't even come out of my mouth. And people started asking me about that scene when I was doing press for the film. And I really tried to dodge questions about it, just sort of deny it, like, oh, no, this has never happened to me, but I've got a lot to say about it. (laughs) And that wasn't sustainable. Right after I did that movie, actually, I went and did Westworld. There was only a day between the two of those projects. I finished one, I got on a plane, and immediately started filming Westworld. And then I didn't know what Westworld was really going to be about. They kept everything kind of hidden from us. And so I was finding out with the show, like script by script. And as an actor, being put in situations where you have to be in peril or you're getting beaten up or you're getting dragged or you're being threatened or you're having to stand up against an abuser, as an actor, at least for me, you go back in your Rolodex and you say, what can I draw from? Mm -hmm. Bring real emotion to the scene. And of course, I had my experiences. And it was the first time I think I'd really let myself go back and feel certain things because I wasn't able to cry about it for about, I want to say, seven years. I didn't cry about anything that had happened to me until I got into trauma therapy like many, many years later. Seven years out of the relationship before you were able to cry about it. Before I was able to shed a tear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm doing these scenes where it's my job, you know, it's like, you got to go there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it gave me permission, I think, and a buffer because I was in a controlled Mm -hmm, situation. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I could allow myself in a bit more. And it just like opened up Pandora's box. Like there's a scene, like my character is programmed. She can't pull any triggers of any guns. She's trapped. She can't defend herself. And then there's a scene where she finally does. And she overrides her program and she pulls the trigger and she gets up and she runs. And that scene, I remember, was a big moment for me, having to act the feeling of being held back and then breaking through it. And then definitely filming the finale, there's this beautiful monologue that I was given about, I'm not crying for myself, I'm crying for you because I'm going to stand up and I'm going to keep going and you're going to perish and fights back and 
that was a big day too. And that was sort of the first time I started telling people, like I definitely told people on set, like people I trusted, mm -hmm. just in case I got triggered or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I started opening up to people a little bit more and saying, you know, I was in a really abusive relationship and I just want you to, can you just stand off to the side just in case? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I don't want anybody to really know, mm -hmm. but I definitely want somebody, a safe person there in case I get mm -hmm, too overwhelmed or something. Mm -hmm. And so doing the show unlocked a lot of things and got me talking about it bit by bit. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then I met other survivors on that show. Oh, okay. You know, Tandaway Newton mm -hmm. has come forward as yeah, well. Yeah. And she recognized something in me. Wow. And then she brought me to Eve Ensler. Yeah. And Eve was one of the first people I told my story to. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the first people that said, I believe you. Mm -hmm. And like that that also kickstarted a lot of things. So you said she saw something in she you. She saw something. And what was that? She said, I could just tell you were still in it. There was a buzzing sort yep. of energy yep. to mm -hmm. me. And mm -hmm. I think now talking to some of those same people years later and them interacting with me, like everybody usually says the same thing. They're like, your whole energy has changed. Mm -hmm. You're calmer. You're lighter than... You know, I was still kind of chain smoking and still mm -hmm. agitated and still like she's numbing something. Like yeah. I can just tell she's mm -hmm. trying to keep herself busy. She's got these kind of nervous habits. I think she just saw something that she identified with. I've seen it too. Like I've connected with people not knowing their backstories at all from one meeting. Mm -hmm. I can just tell by looking in their eyes or I can tell by their communication skills or styles mm -hmm. that they've done inner work and that they've been through something and yeah. I'll immediately feel sort of connected. I love how you just put it. Is there's a buzzing. I think that's actually probably more accurate than you would know because there is sort of a frisson, like mm -hmm. a, a crackling that's happening in somebody who's viewing everything in your life as a threat and it wasn't being processed and it was being numbed in so many different ways, but there's really no putting it away. No. I think that that's the piece. When your relationship ended, Evan, you left, but you weren't talking about it. No. So, I mean, it's like a psychological pseudo-safety. You're away from the peril because obviously there's a benefit to no longer having to live under those circumstances. But if you don't do the processing, it's like they're still in the room with you, yeah. right? So it's, it's, you're not living in the same place, but your nervous system didn't get the memo. So as far as you're concerned, they're still there. You're still walking on the eggshells. So how long was it before Westworld? Before, was that about seven years? That was Westworld, that yeah. That was the seven yeah. years. What I want to understand yeah. is you're out, you're physically out. You're not talking about it. So psychologically, that's a long period of time. Six, seven years is a long time. What was that like? Sorry, I don't know why I'm crying. You never. We have a rule on navigating narcissism. Nobody gets to say, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> I think I'm getting emotional just because those years were some of the hardest because that was before I knew what was going yeah. on with me. Yes. And I immediately tried to... I got back together with an ex of mine that I was dating when I met Brian. And, like, I think there was a part of me that just wanted to go back, you know, mm -hmm. like, just wanted to get back to where I was before and to try and, like, fix what was broken. And I didn't know how to describe what was happening with me or my body. I was definitely still programmed to respond and behave like I was in the room with Brian, for mm -hmm. sure. And I think that really confused my partner. Mm -hmm. Because it seemed like I was being dishonest about things and it yeah. seemed like I was, you know, it wasn't safe to tell the truth with Brian. Yeah. And I think that carried on into my next relationship. Mm -hmm. mm. 
where I was just programmed to like, if I felt like I was going to get in trouble or if mm-hmm. I felt like I'd done something wrong or if I felt like I didn't say the right thing, I was like, oh, well, well, here's the excuse and, and, and here's, here's me defending mm-hmm. myself and here's, and here's this and here's, yeah. here's this panic. And I, and I think that comes across very alarming <laughs> to certain people and mm-hmm. confusing. And I didn't know mm-hmm. why I was doing that, mm-hmm. why I was responding in these ways. I didn't know why I was so shut down. I didn't know why I was self-sabotaging and being impulsive and unable to be honest with them about certain things. Mm-hmm. Still just completely programmed and didn't know that I had PTSD. I was having night terrors. I would wake up screaming next to my partner and in, in sweats. So it wasn't until I kept trying to have this normal life and it just wasn't working. And all of these emotional problems and relationship problems and nervous system problems started popping up that I realized like I couldn't run from it anymore. And it took sort of everything falling apart and my marriage falling apart and becoming a new mom that really changed everything. So that's what I was doing in between was just trying to move on, trying to have a normal life, trying to have a marriage. Mm -hmm. And then once I had my child, I was like, well, you know, if you want to be a good parent, you got to work on yourself as much as possible. Yeah. Whatever issues might be in there. And now's the time to sort of like face them and get ahead Mm -hmm. of this as much Mm -hmm. as possible so that you're not transferring anything onto your kid. And so it became really important to me to do self-work. Before then, I was just living in the, I don't know what's wrong with me. I think I'm going crazy. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. my partner thinks I'm crazy. Mm -hmm. Leaving what you did, wanting and craving normal, it's what we expect somebody would want after that. But without doing that, the processing of the trauma you're living in a permanent state of threat. Mm -hmm. So what you were describing as sort of those agitated reactions you'd have with your partner, 1,000% expectable because your system was reacting to these situations as though they were dire cataclysmic threats. Everything makes sense, right? The funny thing about trauma is as much as it's not us sort of having, if you will, normal responses, it is given what your system believes is coming at it. I always call it, it's like a faulty alarm system. I'm like, yeah. well, I mean, your alarm system did think something came in the door. The problem is the sensor's not right. Exactly. The door, door yeah. actually yeah. wasn't open. To take right? the sensitivity yeah, like, you, you, That's it. That's um, really what it is. Yeah. So for those six, seven years, as you threw yourself into normal, if you will, and it gave you the gift of your child. Yeah. So I don't believe there are ever any no. lost experiences. No. That said, there's no packing this away and forgetting about it. Yes, it can become incredibly dissociated, but somehow something wafts into our life and it turns that light on and illuminates what happened to us. For you, it happened while you were making this show. And simultaneously, my marriage and everything was falling Falling apart. apart. Yeah. Right. So Westworld feels so significant in terms of an insight moment. It's so important for us to learn from that because that was sort of like your penny drop moment in terms of awareness that led you into a new twisted the road for you. Can you share what you really ultimately learned from that experience? I was moving through life and I was entering relationships with the very firm belief there was something wrong with me. It was me. blaming you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For those Mm -hmm. years in between, leading up before that, I was like, you are the problem. Something's wrong with you. I think in my marriage and things, I walked into that thinking I was completely inferior, that I was lucky to be with this person. I think sometimes that was sort of, yeah, the vibe of like, you know, 
she's a lot, but I deal with it because I love her. People would look at me and say, don't fuck this up. It was always just kind of like, right, I'm the fucked up one. Mm -hmm. And if anything goes wrong, it's my fault. Mm -hmm. And I took responsibility for everything that went wrong in that marriage. Everything. I never stood up for myself. I never, you know, questioned anything. It was always just like, it's me, it's me, it's me. And so that's how I was moving through the world. Self-blame is the universal pattern of anyone who experiences betrayal trauma, betrayal of any form in a relationship, relational trauma, and narcissistic abuse. That's where you go because it serves so many functions. It maintains a sense of control. Okay, if this is me, then I can change it. It allows the attachment or the relationship to persist. It allows your worldview to persist, that the world is somehow safer or more just than this relationship is teaching you. Yes. Right? It's a lot. So the self-blame is this incredibly unhealthy, self-destructive thing that happens that is slowly eroding us to the point where we almost don't know where we end and the world begins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of the work of healing is for you to understand that there was this experience that happened outside of you, that another person was responsible for this behavior, that behavior was unacceptable, and there was nothing you could do to change that, and nor would it ever change. I think before I even got to the place of, oh, here's the tactics and here's the thing this person did, the first step for me mm-hmm. was just somebody validating that what had happened to me was awful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that was the first step. That was the thing that made me cry for the first time. I put myself yeah. into trauma therapy because while I was doing Westworld and I was noticing these things and certain things were starting to get shaken up, I also noticed that I was talking to somebody that I was collaborating with creatively. Mm-hmm. All I needed to do was tell them that I wanted to change something, like a pretty common thing to just have in a creative conversation. And I was terrified to say that I needed something or wanted something. Mm-hmm. And I was working up the courage to do this, and this person stopped me mid-conversation. They're like, are you okay? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're just like, you're gripping the chair and I didn't even realize I was wrapped around this chair and I was white knuckle I was holding on to it for dear life and they looked at me and they said I'm not gonna hit you like as a joke almost I like slowly sort of released the chair and I realized that I was that scared to just give an opinion (laughs) and that's when I was like oh this is trauma therapy time. And I'd had a therapist before then say that I was exhibiting symptoms of PTSD. So I started trauma therapy. And I think the first session, I just started telling her some things that had happened to me. And that was all she said was, that sounds really awful. That sounds really awful. Mm -hmm. That sounds awful. And I think that was one of the first times I'd spoken to somebody about it, but also spoken to somebody that understood and was trauma-informed and didn't blame me. Because I had people ask, oh, well, was this just a game you guys were playing? Or, oh, was this a weird sex thing? Or, oh, was this... Like, they immediately follow up with questions. Well, why were you drinking? Well, why were you doing drugs? Why are you doing this? And so anything before then, it felt very shaming. And this was just the first time it was validating. And that was the first step for me to start to realize maybe it wasn't all my fault. And it takes a long time to get there. Because to take that away, that the idea that it wasn't your fault is actually a very, very tricky psychological process even for a therapist to 
do because that's your scaffold for so long that if we just pull down the whole scaffold, the facade is going to fall. It's not as simple as like, no, this wasn't your fault and this is what it was. And the person like, what, 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 what? You can't just dismantle realities. That's not how therapy, psychology, any of that works. It's a tentative dance. Somebody dismantled yeah. you. Putting you back together again is a process too, which requires support and compassion and therapeutic love. And in your process, not only were you blaming yourself, but you as a survivor were being blamed and shamed. I'd already been blamed, yeah. So can you break that part? Because that was a very important parallel process that's happening in your trauma Yeah, experience. well, while I was being groomed by him and while our relationship was becoming public in the beginning, people's response to it was very shaming and very blaming and all of the attention was focused on me none was on Brian the story everybody was focusing on was like here's this like sort of young harlot lolita type yeah. home wrecking party girl that's come in and ruined everything and none of the focus seemed to be about the fact that I was that young and he was so much older and this seemed somewhat inappropriate or that he was the married one cheating on his wife. It wasn't that he's doing these things. It's that she's doing this to this woman. So I was really shocked at the onslaught of hate that I got mainly from women. Hmm. It felt like very scarlet letter. And he seemed to sort of kind of get off oh, yeah. scot-free mm -hmm. in that situation. Nobody was posting his picture online and writing horror across it. That was me. Mm -hmm. The joke was like, well, she's clearly crazy because you would have to be crazy to date somebody like him or that looked like him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that reinforced the idea that I have of like, wow, see, like people just don't understand. They're saying things about me that aren't true. They're saying I'm crazy just because he looks the way he does mm -hmm, and I look mm -hmm. the way that I do. And it made me turn on the world even more and run even deeper into Brian's arms because it just reinforced what he was saying, which was the world's against you. It's an unsafe place. The world doesn't understand you. The world doesn't understand me. It's me and you against the world. In fact, that was the saying that he says to me and that he said to a few of the other girls is together is one against all others. It's us mm. and that's it. And so as he's telling me these things and saying, you can't trust your parents, you can't trust the adults in your life because they've been controlling you and they're making you miserable and you need to stay with me because I'm the only safe place. And then simultaneously the world is coming after me and saying that I'm this horrible person that's done this horrible thing by being with this person, then yeah, then like, where are you gonna go? Well, he makes himself your only safe space. Yes. Which is so classical a dynamic in these relationships that he can keep taking you apart. So he's the only one who has the instruction manual yeah. to put you back together. Exactly. And that dismantling and then myth that I'm the only one who can put you together. And when the world is coming at you and you're as young as you were, it's as though it's so manifest to me, speaks also to things like patriarchy and the anti-woman yeah. sentiments that cut through our world, that somebody's labeling an 18 or 19-year-old girl a homewrecker yeah. without any developmental recognition of what this is. And in fact, he's the one who made the vow to the wife, not you. And you're swept away in something. You know, it's interesting because you said early in the relationship, other people around you were sounding alarm bells and freaking out, still doing his sort of... The, in the, data in the gathering, the process. grooming process, of course, right? Yeah. They were freaked out by the age who, difference, yeah. Who were these people? Were these your supports? Like, yeah, what was that yeah. about? Yeah, my mom, my mm. mom really, really 
had a hard time. Mm, um, my partner at the time, of course, was having a really hard time. My agents and publicists, I have a different agent and publicist now. So at the time, everyone just seemed very worried. Mm -hmm. But nobody was really saying we're worried that he's taking advantage of you or preying on you Uh. or grooming you. It was just like, we're worried you're on drugs. We're worried, you know, this person's corrupting you or Mm -hmm. this person, Mm -hmm. you know, it was sort of framed in a different Mm -hmm. way. And so I just couldn't hear it. It just felt like more noise, like more Mm -hmm. this is just more people don't understand me. Right. And because of his look and his persona, it was very easy, I could see, to get swept away in that people aren't getting this, which pulled the lens away from this process is unhealthy. Yeah. Slowly but surely, the way you were being treated was unhealthy. It fostered a plausible alternative narrative Mm -hmm. that shielded you from actually doing a deeper look at the other problematic dynamics. Correct. Not unusual in a malignant narcissistic relationship at all. I'm going to come back to your youth again and again because there's a process of individuation that's happening in adolescence. Mm -hmm. I need to separate from the, you know, the structures aren't letting me grow to the next space. It's a very healthy process. Yeah, that's when you flee the nest. The The problem is if you're trying to flee the nest into a situation where someone that is this toxic is on the other side, that's when it's a disaster. Yeah, that was part of the grief too, Mm -hmm. of just like I had just gotten out of my mother's house. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd had my mm-hmm. driver's license for two years. I was just yeah. getting out into the world. Mm-hmm. And the first place that I end up was with this person. Yeah. That's devastating. How were these other important relationships in your life, like your relationship with your mom, affected by you sort of remaining in this relationship with him? So she had a nervous breakdown. We were very enmeshed. And I think that's another one of the reasons why I pushed back so hard and why it was easy for Brian to sort of isolate me from my parents. I was already slightly isolated from my father because he lived in a different state. I see. I love my mother very much, and she was a single mom. She did her best, but I was ready to have my independence for sure. Enmeshed is another one of those words we hear very often these days. Let me break down exactly what it is and why it is a toxic dynamic. Enmeshment refers to any emotional relationship where emotional boundaries are poorly defined can result in emotional over-involvement, and can block emotional autonomy for people in these systems. Enmeshed systems can foster unhealthy dependencies, and people trying to break out of enmeshed systems may find they overcorrect and completely cut themselves out of their family system because it feels impossible to find a middle ground. I think he saw that and I think used that to his advantage. And she had a really difficult time with it. And I know there was at least a year while I was with him where her and I didn't speak. It was the longest we'd ever gone without speaking. And she was really, really, really struggling. But I had also felt that sort of kind of shaming energy from her, which, you know, she's acknowledged and like has caught herself a few times realizing like, oh, I'm doing the thing. I had a conversation with her once like years later where I had gotten roofied or drugged mm-hmm. at a bar and I had realized it and managed to have my friends get me out of there before mm-hmm. I, you know, couldn't move my arms essentially. So I was telling her about it and I was saying, yeah, I had one drink and 
lost control of my arms and realized you know, there had to have been something I drink. Like I only had one drink and her first response was, why were you drinking? As a mom, I get that question. Exactly. I understand. Exactly. And I get it too. But I immediately, because of all the work that we had done and everything experienced, I stopped her and I went, mom. <laughs> and she realized immediately. And she's like, oh my God, I just did the thing. I just immediately, I, just I, I jumped into that protective mode. Yeah. And the societal brainwashing, yeah, I went straight to the shaming mm -hmm. part instead of, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. That should never right. have happened. I don't care how much you drink. Yep. Nobody has the right to put drugs yep. in, in. It's interesting you said you were enmeshed with your mother. Yeah. Was that something you did believe to be true? Yeah, I felt responsible for her. Okay. She was mm -hmm. a single mom. It was really kind of the two of us on our own. I was working and she was supporting my career and seeing her going through the divorce and wanting to take care of her, I think I just immediately just jumped into a caretaker role and this idea that, well, if I'm just the perfect child and I never give her any problems, then she'll be really happy and I'll just put my needs aside and I'll make myself as small as possible and as good as possible. Make myself as small as possible and good as possible. That dynamic with your mom. Did that predate this relationship? Yeah. It did. Yeah. That's interesting because we're talking about vulnerabilities. That kind of somewhere along the line getting the message that Evan needs to make her needs smaller and that's a means of support. Yeah. Right? That's a dangerous precedent. I, I agree. Right? There's a million explanations for that psychologically. I mean, I'm your soul sister in that. I do, I've do. done always yeah. that exact same thing. So I have an appreciation for that. When we cut it up, it's culture. It's yeah. how we view women. It's actually how a young person keeps a sense of control mm -hmm. in a relationship. And to me, that's even more more terrible that a perpetrator could do this because they're taking advantage of a situation precisely when you needed to be protected. Correct. Mm -hmm. And I always wondered if by sharing with him these things about my home life and the way I felt mm -hmm. that he didn't take note of it and think, well, this is like the perfect breeding ground because I've thought about that. And, you know, you don't know that it's what you're doing as a parent. I don't think any of it was done with malice. It's just sort of the hand that I think my mother and I were both dealt and are able to look back on now and go, oh, yeah, this was the perfect mm -hmm, sort of breeding mm -hmm. ground for my voice to be very mm -hmm. stifled and for me to feel like I had to act a certain way to be loved. And, of course, that would then feed in immediately mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm, situation mm -hmm. with Brian because I was already sort of conditioned to do that, especially with an older mm -hmm. person. The grooming process is an assessment process, right? So it's like looking at a plot of land and saying, can we build a house here? It's assessing something for its viability. Is this ripe territory for me to be able to do what I want, get what I need. There's no recognition of the human being. And then what's so imbalanced and asymmetric about the relationship is you're going into it thinking it was a get acquainted process. Yeah. Someone's learning about me. I'm learning about them. Someone cares about me. Someone's right. listening. Exactly. They care about my experience and my that, inner world. And that's powerful. But that's it's asymmetric because they're not doing that. No. They are actually doing assessment and evaluation. And is this worth the time and trouble? So you're not playing the same game. And that's why grooming is so dangerous because the other person is also more disempowered and they're learning every which way you are disempowered. So Correct. that's the other treachery. So as you're going through this, in these four years you're in this relationship, how is your relationship with your mother unfolding? Like, and not just your mother, but other supports. I became very angry, I think. I got more and more angry with my mother mm. because to me, it felt like she was losing control and that scared her. And the more autonomy I gained, 
the more nervous she became. So I think that's how I made sense of it. And it's mm. certainly how Brian was framing it to me. Yeah. She's controlled you your whole life. She's not able to do that anymore. So now she has to make it seem like you're crazy. Yeah. Yep. And yep. that you're in a bad situation and she's going to say bad things about me and bad things about you to try to get you to leave mm -hmm. so that you go back mm -hmm. to her. I didn't always subscribe to everything that he was saying, but I knew that if I pushed back, he wasn't going to accept it. My relationship with my mom just slowly eroded because the deeper I got into the relationship and the worse things got, the more panicked she got, the harder she would kind of come down on me and then the more I would push away. And so it just became like this vicious cycle until I finally told her that I didn't want to talk to her anymore. But Brian was standing right next to me the whole time. And he would kind of listen in on my conversations and under the guise of like, I'm going to help you navigate this. Right. He was kind of puppeteering it. And right. so like he'd write things down on a piece of paper for me to say. He would record the conversations that I was having. And so I'm thinking, wow, this guy's giving me like really good advice. You know, when really he really set it up so that it came to a head and he said, he just said, you know, tell your mother you don't want to talk to her anymore. Like, just right. be done with it, mm -hmm. you know, um, and hang up on her. And that's what I did. So it was coercive because yeah. it, and it and it was isolating, which is always the yes. play, right? The yeah. more he the, was always right, right there overseeing. Right. See, that's everything. the thing. So that yeah. was a it's like a coerced confession. Mm -hmm. Plus the isolation, you now have no more touchstones back into reality. He gets to entirely dictate the narrative, the reality, everything. That's exactly, and what that's happened. every narcissistic relationship. I think that we have this depiction of isolation as being. I'm locked off from the world and I don't have credit cards and I don't have a phone and I can't communicate. There's versions of that. Yeah. That certainly happens. But isolation is also the seeds that get planted in our mind that create doubt about the motivations of the people around us. So mm -hmm. you may still have contact with them. It's isolation isn't just aloneness. Yeah. It is the psychological loss of trust in what were traditionally and could still be your supports, but they cannot do their puppeteering with those supports in yeah. place. Yeah, cults do the same thing, Absolutely. you know, when they're like, uh -huh. you know, don't read anything about the cult online and just like society trying to brainwash mm -hmm. you and all these things and we've got the answer. And like, it's the same kind of psychology of up is down and down is up. And everything that you've known previously was actually the thing holding you down. He did the same thing with my best friend, the friend that I'd had since I was eight years old. We were living together. He had me kick her out of my house. He had me go over there and he sent one of his flying monkeys with me, one of his assistants. And she recorded everything that I did to show him to make sure that I was doing what he had asked me to do. Mm -hmm. Flying monkeys is a term we use to describe the most toxic enablers of narcissists. Just like the Wicked Witch from The Wizard of Oz sent winged monkeys to do her bidding, narcissistic abusers often utilize others to carry out tasks and help maintain the narcissist's overall sense of power and control. So mm -hmm. even when he wasn't with me, he had eyes on me or brings some sort of proof that proof. like yeah. what I was mm -hmm. doing was what I was saying, yep. um, which also made it hard to get out. And so, yeah, he had me kick her out and he was watching me. Same thing with my brother. Like anybody that cared about me or anybody that said, hey, I'm worried about you, those people immediately were kicked out. Of course. Yeah, yes. they were against right. him. Um, and the brainwashing that would take place too, like at first it was under the guise of care and then it became incredibly paranoid and incredibly like these people are literally out to get us. Right. 
you know, and I have to defend myself against these people. And this is like a dangerous situation. And it escalated more and more and more to the point where my mom and my brother showed up at the house one day because I just wasn't returning phone calls mm -hmm. and I, they hadn't seen me in a really long time and, and they were getting worried. And so I guess they thought, you know, we should be able to just go over and see mm -hmm. her whenever we want and just knock on the door. Like, what's mm -hmm. going on? And so they didn't know that I had just been trying to talk him off the ledge for like two days. <laughs> One of the hardest things that he would do is essentially isolate you in the house for at least two days, just you and him and like a mound of cocaine. And he would keep you up and he would stay awake just berating you telling you everything that was wrong with the world, what was wrong with the people around you, everything you were doing wrong, all the ways you were failing him, you were failing yourself, the suspicions he had towards you. He would start wrecking the house. And it was just like this nonstop onslaught of words and monologues. And like it was just this constant stream of negativity that I felt like I couldn't escape and couldn't stop. And that's where like the relentless sort of like psychological, like brainwashing and abuse started taking place where he just wouldn't stop. And he wouldn't stop until you gave him what he wanted or you gave in or you started agreeing with everything he was saying or mm -hmm. if you just started doing whatever he mm -hmm. wanted you to do or making the phone calls he wanted you to make mm -hmm. or it just wouldn't stop otherwise. Yeah. And so I had just kind of talked him off the ledge of one of these onslaughts of, I don't know what else to call it. And so, yeah, my mom and my brother showed up to the house and he thought I had called them. Mm. And hmm. it just restarted everything that I'd just been through. Yep. And I was like, okay, that's two more days. And yeah, he started freaking out and thinking that it was all like a plot against him, sort of pleading and begging. Like, I didn't, I didn't call anybody, I didn't do anything, I didn't. But, you know, by then, things were really bad. My conversation will continue after this break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. But then that series of emotional reactions starts to come out of the perpetrator. Keep in mind, we talk about narcissism, we talk about psychopathy, and I'm sure you've heard this framing of the dark tetrad. is a really elegant theoretical model developed by a guy named Paulus and his colleagues, and it's this idea of narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and sadism, and Machiavellianism is more of an exploitativeness, that all hang together. Like, it's all just sort of fits. I would argue paranoia belongs in there, too. In oh, a relational God. context, you can see the way it creates this kind of, this madness in thinking, this relentlessness, this exploitativeness, this willingness to take advantage of you, to isolate you, to have no empathy for you, to be cold, callous, calculating. You take everything that all of these things are because they all work together. Yeah. Not only impossible to maintain a relationship, the other person is always going to be harmed. But for you, it was setting in these cycles where no one could support you because if they did, their support of you was now cascading into more it harm. It was an attack. Yes. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. an attack. It was seen yeah. as an attack. Correct. And that would set him off and to also attack me because I must have tripped the alarm. Correct. You tripped the alarm. And Dr. Jennifer Fried has a model called DARVO, which is yes. deny, attack, reverse victim offender, right? That's exactly what you're talking about. Although 
this person's a perpetrator is coming back to I'm the victim, I'm the victim, I'm Mm -hmm. the victim. And that would be a very almost soothing place. And then it puts you in the place, puts you on your back foot to have to sort of fix the situation. And those cycles can go on for decades in these relationships. Yeah. That was the worst part, actually, was the kept up for days, the downloading of information is what it felt like. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and just the being worn down to the point of submission. Like, right. um, I have a question. I've heard different types of narcissists and maybe like different levels, but I don't know what your take is on it of like, do you think there's different forms of narcissism, different levels of mm-hmm. it, like narcissism that can show up and maybe be put in check and fix or like narcissism that can't like, I'm always kind of curious about that. I know there's like covert narcissism and there's like malignant narcissism and there's maybe like um, narcissistic traits, but like, I don't know what your take is on that. So narcissism is a personality style, right? And like all personality styles, it exists on a continuum or a spectrum. Right. At the mildest levels, we're talking about someone who's sort of annoying, grandiose, a little entitled and selfish. This is the person who might make a little bit of a persnickety fit at a restaurant or kind uh-huh. of throw a bit of a call me the manager kind of thing. Like they may not be a good friend. They can't put their own stuff aside to be available to someone. Right. But it feels like an emotional stuntedness. It mm. certainly doesn't feel like a menace or anything like that. Right. right? Once you get into the moderate range of it, of the narcissism spectrum, you're really talking about someone where it's not healthy to be in a relationship, but it's not terrifying. Right. It's right. uncomfortable. It's unsatisfying. It's not deep. It's not mutual. Um, you definitely are gaslighted from time to time. You feel manipulated. It's not a happy relationship. It felt like this parent was never there for you. This is a friend that's really self-serving yeah. and maybe taking money from you. It's like it's leveled up. When you get to the far end of the spectrum, here's where we're talking about that's that dark tetrad, talking, yeah. that malignant narcissism. Yeah. Actually, in my book that's coming out next year, mm-hmm. I say malignant narcissism is sort of the last stop on the train before you veer into psychopathy station. Yes. Now, here's what happens in malignant narcissism. They're not the same. There is a division point between mm-hmm. malignant narcissism and psychopathy. Okay. Narcissistic people at the core of themselves are somewhat anxious. They're insecure. They feel inadequate. There's this sort of shame that's always bubbling right up at the surface of almost being found out and all of these defenses, grandiosity and mm-hmm. and intimidation and all those sorts of things draw, the person draws around them as a suit of armor to keep that shame at bay. Controlling and dominating people, that's what we see in the malignant narcissism. Malignant narcissism is where we see the coercive control, but there's always still that sort of, that anxiety, there is some fear of consequences, there's some fear of being found out, and there is some level of insecurity. Now, when we get to psychopathy, there's differences in their brains, Mm -hmm. there is no sense of remorse. Now, in a malignant narcissist, the sense of remorse still doesn't feel like it's fully authentic. The remorse is more like... I got caught. Now I've got to pay for it. The psychopath almost builds the consequences into sort of as part of the model. They're never going to stop psychopathing, as it were. And so usually it's a criminality and a violation of social norms we see from a very young age. Five, six, seven definitely before the age of 15, mm-hmm. right? Violating the rights of others from a very young age. And then psychopathy, listen, not all psychopathy is a person who's like, you know, a, an assassin or it's going to no, you know, harm No, but a lot you. of them just They could be dis- white-collar criminals. Yeah, they no could seem like they're really confident. They're very authoritative. Um, but they're menacing. 
Yeah. And I think with malignant narcissism, the overlap is so much that unless you really spent time with them, you may not fully get to that sort of that base kind right. of anxiety and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Now, what you called a covert narcissist, it's probably better captured by the term vulnerable narcissist. Okay. Here's where we see the resentfulness, sullen, aggrieved, um, Vengeful, angry, perhaps? vindictive, yeah. narcissistic person. But the vindictiveness is more like... How come the world didn't see that I'm a genius? The grandiose person like, hey, I'm a genius. Of course you right. all see it, right? It's, but the the vulnerable person's like, how come nothing ever worked out my way? Grumble, 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 grumble. This Susan is what I have a hard at, time describing to people because yes, they think a narcissist are no, more obvious attention-seeking and in, people. I would say all narcissistic people have some level of covertness. And this is a big distinction because a big pushback you get is, well, maybe they can't help it. Mm. Like, you want to know how I know they can help it? Because he waited till the guests were gone to go off on you. That's exactly right. Right? So then you get into all these other subtypes. You have communal narcissists Mm. who get their validation by portraying themselves as somebody who's helpful and is saving the world. You have self-righteous narcissists who are hyper-ethical, hyper-moral, very judgmental. Mm. I know better than others and very harsh to somebody who's going through a hard time. Well, if they'd only live life the right way, they wouldn't be in this kettle of fish, would they? They can feel judgy. You can see this in religious communities. You'll see it in cult leaders because the communal, communal meets malignant is your cult leader. And what you're describing feels like where malignant means vulnerable. Yeah. That's what we're seeing. And it's a very dangerous combination. Because of the victimhood, because of the I was never understood by the world, it's like, woe is me. Nobody wants to appreciate me. That can pull for a rescuing vibe from other people. Then people are drawn into it, and yeah. then the malignant piece happens. It To me, it's the most deadly of the combinations. Yeah, that all makes so much sense. One thing I feel like, because I feel like I've had interactions with different shades of narcissism that you're kind of describing. But one thing I always, one defining characteristic that I found in all of them that was usually the moment that I realized maybe they were a narcissist was the feeling of they're in a completely different reality. Like there's always a moment where I feel like I'm either recalling something that's happened that I remember clear as day and they either don't remember it at all remember completely differently or their retelling of something or their view of the world or situation either just never happened or they just refuse to acknowledge it. Correct. And that's where I feel like the gaslighting starts to come into play, like, because you suddenly are at a standoff with a narcissist and you're like, well, this is my reality. And they're saying, well, this is my reality. And you're e- you're either going to join me in my reality right. or I'm going to punish you or gaslight you into agreeing or running away. So the only way to keep the relationship going is to fully surrender to their reality. And over time, you actually get indoctrinated to believe that is the only reality. That That's where you see in cults. That's what you see in these relationships if they go on long enough. Yeah, it becomes a means of survival too. And and to the world, the two people, the narcissist and the non-narcissist, they look like they're in sync. Not because they're in sync, but because you are now in survival mode. And so people are like, oh, they're fine. Like, And you look for what 
thunder we saw in you, that look. There's a look. And I, I mean, I, I've done this long enough, and I'm like, oh, I see the look. I can see it's, it it's too It's a look. Now. It's a, f- a little bit far away. It's yes. not fully there. And, you know, now all of a sudden you're in the Manchurian candidate. You're like, okay, woo, <laughs> let's bring you back. But it's not as simple as waving your hand over someone's eyes. No. It's about a very slow process of reacquainting someone with reality. And some of the work I do with survivors is I want you like three times a day. Am I hungry right now? Like literally we start from basics, like plugging into bodily sensations. Yep. Yes. You have to start from scratch. You have to start from scratch. You have to start from scratch. That's how it felt. Mm -hmm. Rebuilding myself felt like I had to go Mm -hmm. all the way back to the beginning Mm -hmm. to the point I was so worn down. I had to like relearn how to walk. Yes, you are. You're really, it's, it's beyond, real, at least a baby knows when it's hungry. And yep. part of your healing process mm-hmm. has to come from being in tune with mm-hmm. your body and getting back into mm-hmm. it is like the first step. It felt like I was watching my life from behind a pane of glass and it was absolutely terrifying. You know how if you've ever seen old colonial home, they have that leady glass, which is like distorty. You know, it's not yes. clear. It's not just glass. It's distorty glass mm-hmm. where you can't quite make out the images on the other side. You know that there's a thing back there and there's some light and there's a plant. Maybe there's a person, but they're distorted. Yes. You're starting from scratch and you had to start from scratch. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it with everything. I felt like I had to relearn empathy, too, because... I think after my experience with Brian, which one of the reasons I felt like I had fallen into that was because I was overly empathetic, like what you were saying of like, I see the good in everybody and like, I'm going to be the one Mm -hmm. that stays. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the one that sacrifices everything for you. Maybe empathy is the wrong word, but at the time it felt like when I got out of that situation that empathy was dangerous. And I felt like if I cared about people, Mm -hmm. then I was going to become vulnerable. And so... I think without realizing it, I kind of shut that part down when I started disassociating and I couldn't allow myself to care for people in the same way because it felt unsafe. And so I also had to relearn how to do that because otherwise you repeat the cycle, right? Well, there's also an overcorrection when you come out, right? Because, (laughs) right? Empathy does feel dangerous because you're immediately working the angles. Like, how am I going to be taken advantage of? And I tell survivors, I'm not mad at that. Let's stay there. This is why it is a slow process. That overcorrection, though, that initially happens, people say, what's happened to me? Am I now like them? It's not that you lose your empathy. Mm -hmm. It's actually now a period of discernment. Mm -hmm. It's a very slow creeping into what does trust look like? And a lot of folks will say, this is taking me forever. And I'll say, so what? If this person is able to see your gifts, true love, genuine love, is when you're the custodian of another person's vulnerabilities. And that means their hurts, their wounds, and their traumas. And so if you've been through this and someone meets you and in a loving way and you've been through this, then that's going to take a long time. And somebody who loves you and cares about you will let it take as long as it Mm -hmm. takes. But when they start hitting with you, why am I paying for the sins of the person who came before me? Yeah, I'm not that person. I've heard that a lot. And you say, because the process that brought me to you has brought many, many wounds, but also some gifts. That's the nature of trauma. Exactly. But that's going to take a minute, and there is an overcorrection. It's like when after you're in a surgery, you're walking very tentatively, so you don't put too much weight on the leg. <laughs> exactly. Right? And then you slowly can put more and more weight on the leg. Yeah, that's but you a good don't go run on it right away. And if no. we can do that for a leg, we can do it for our soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever I had, like, a new partner, I would always say, like, you have to approach me like you would a shelter dog. Mm-hmm. You know, when when mm-hmm. you first adopt a dog and you 
they tell you, we don't know what happened to them, but we know something happened. They're very afraid yeah. of people. They're very afraid of touch. Mm-hmm. They're afraid to come out of their cage. And you see like all these success stories online of people just taking it really slow with the dog. Every day the bull gets a little closer. Yeah. Every day, maybe they get the leash on a day. Mm-hmm. Maybe they get a, a little pet here and there. And then like over time, and yeah, over about a year, suddenly the dog's outside mm-hmm. running around playing, licking their owner's face and all these things. But it takes time and it mm-hmm. takes time to build that trust because something has happened to that dog. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we're like more apt to, <laughs> to, to believe it about dogs yeah. than people. people. Yeah. yeah. And and it was a public story. So you continue to be castigated and criticized and abused from that large ephemeral internet-y space of all oh, these yeah, the terrible people. Oh, yeah, the smear campaign people. is still in full effect, yeah. and it's even mm-hmm. scarier now. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody I talk to is a potential person that could take advantage of me Correct. or use me or use something against me or whatever. And it is really scary. And, yes, that does continue to happen. When I decided to do this... I had to make peace with the idea that a lot of things could go away and I might have to be okay with that. And a lot of the things that could go away are things that I feel like the narcissist holds near and dear. And I kind of told myself that I was just going to have to let things go, like reputation Mm -hmm. and money Mm -hmm. and career and public perception and all of these things that like I know to them, like these are the worst things that you can lose or that I can take away Mm -hmm. from you. And for me, I just immediately kind of said, like, I think one of my only defenses here is going to be letting go of any attachment I have to these things, because then I don't really know Mm -hmm. what they're going to have over me anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right way to go about it or not, but it felt like the only way to suspend that kind of fear was just saying, like, okay, I have a backup plan in case all of this goes away. (laughs) And I can't be afraid of these things. And I can't be afraid of the lies people are going to tell or the smear campaigns or the assassinations on my character because, A, that happens to every survivor Mm -hmm. that comes forward against a powerful person or a person that was beloved or has a following or whatever. Like, it's gotten a lot worse with the internet. I don't want to say worse, but different. There's, like, different plans of attacks because it's always been pretty bad. At least I'm not getting lobotomized now or something, you know? Right, right. So I don't even want to say worse, but there's just different kind of forms of the same thing. It's like you get stoned in the town square or you get called crazy hysteria, you get lobotomized, and now Mm -hmm. it's like, I can't even go online anymore. Like, I can't. No, you can't. I've lost that privilege. Yeah, that's Mm -mm. done. Like, my my social media days are completely over. There's this quote I love that somebody said, whenever somebody speaks out against abuse— eventually your tone is exaggerated. Your tone being exaggerated is such a big thing. They take things you've said out of context and they try to like shame and scare you into silence. And that's what I feel like I'm experiencing now. And it's working because I've wanted to talk less and less and I've censored myself more and more until the point where I'm almost non-existent on social media anymore inside Mm -hmm. of just like Maybe here's a show or a job that I'm doing. But other than that, like, I don't feel like I can share my opinion anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that tactic absolutely is working. And When you say that tactic, for, that tactic is working for whom? Well, I do feel like that the media can be complicit in some ways. I think Ronan Farrell spoke about this a bit in Catch and Kill and that it wasn't just about Weinstein. It was also sort of uncovering like a mass conspiracy to protect predators oh, and, and, and high, high profile I totally ones. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I think that yeah. is absolutely a thing. And I. But you said something very important, which was me having to sort of give myself to detach from things that might have been important to me if I'm either going to speak out or show up the way I want in this situation. So you spoke out. What was his reaction to you speaking out? Brian's? Mm-hmm. Well, first I was speaking out without naming him, mm-hmm. but uh 
he was trying to say was other people in my life and kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, well, she told me about so-and-so or it must have been this person mm-hmm. or that person. And then I, he started getting questioned about it because mm-hmm. people were mm-hmm. kind of putting two and two mm-hmm. together um, and ended up hanging up on the on the interviewer because mm-hmm. they were getting a little too close. And that sort of caused a bit of an uproar. So I know he was just trying to kind of downplay it at first. And then we, you know, me and, and a, a few other survivors came forward. And the first thing I noticed was he started setting up the narrative with some of the words he used, like, these are horrible distortions of reality and whatever I've done, it's been with, you know, like-minded partners or things like that. So I immediately understand, like, okay, he's already setting this up that these were all consensual interactions and we just maybe misunderstood or got in over our head. And because he's a powerful man who has built a career off of being shocking and disturbing is going to get away with it because his right to being weird and kinky will get defended in court and we will get shamed for ever even stepping foot Mm -hmm. in there or participating. And so it's been used a million times. Hours after Evan publicly named Brian as her alleged abuser, he issued the following written statement. Obviously, my art and my life have long been magnets for controversy, but these recent claims about me are horrible distortions of reality. My intimate relationships have always been entirely consensual with like-minded partners, regardless of how and why others are choosing to misrepresent the past. That is the truth. But there were people popping up on the internet that were saying there were minors, and I was like, well, how are you going to defend that? You're just, you know, you can't mm-hmm. say that. Those things were consensual. More stories started popping up, and slowly he stopped talking. He just stopped talking completely. And now his lawyer just kind of says things for him. He's kind of fallen away. And I think it's the only reason why it's more disturbing and scary right now is I think we're at a weird precipice. No, it absolutely. People are very scared. Yeah, it's really, really scary. First of all, when a person is in a groomed relationship, there's never consent. No, it's not possible for there to have been consent at any point in time because it will how it, it, the developmental structure of the relationship, right? So no consent ever. So let's just lift that right from them. When there's menace at any point in a relationship, that kind of gaslighting, the consent bus left the station a long time ago. A long ago. time ago. Then we forget that while these feel like individual relationships. These are societal issues like patriarchy, like hierarchies, like oppression and all of the structures, which means you have a perma perpetrator now. OK, they're not going to not do this. This is how they wrecking crew themselves through life. I mean, every day people come at me. You are a cruel person. How dare she? She's going after people, the personality style. Call it whatever you want to call it. Give it a different name. Give it another damn name. I call That's why I use antagonism. That seems to be a little mm. bit more palatable. But it's a style that is resistant to change. And once they're done with you, they go they on go to the, on next, the next and the next that's and the so next. Scary. And there is no Yelp for people. No. There is no review guide. No. And that's why... I don't want to speak for all survivors, but that is why I felt like I had to come forward. It wasn't to, I mean, a lot of people think this narrative, it it, it bothers me that like all we want is like bloody revenge or like it's about hurting the person Mm -hmm. that hurt us Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. sticking it to them or whatever. And it's like, no, it's us realizing, because look, what they did to me was awful and I hated it, but I was ready to go to my grave with it because I thought it was just me. But yeah. when I realized there was a pattern and it was yeah. happening to other mm-hmm. people exactly the same way it was happening to me and it was going to keep happening, yep. like 
That's when you yeah. take to social media. Law enforcement yeah. can't help me. Okay, I don't know how no. else to protect right. people. Yeah. I don't know how else to protect people or warn people except to put my yeah. ass on the line. That's right. And then that, but that took <laughs> a toll on to you. That took a toll on you. So speaking of the toll on you, yeah. how is your healing going? There's good days and bad days. It's still really hard. Some days, like, oh, everything feels really normal. And then you get hit with another legal attack or an attack on your character in the press or something coming and you're just like, oh, right. I'm still in tango with this person. I don't think this person's ever going away until they pass away. Honestly, I don't know how they're ever going to stop. I agree. That's an awful feeling because it's like I've been going through this half of my life. I was mm -hmm. 18 when it started. I'll be 36 this year. And I, I'm still going through it. And that's... It's a bummer to say the least, but my nervous system for the first time feels like it's calmer than it's ever been, but I've had to make decisions for my life so that I can be in optimal health and that I can thrive and I can be happy and I can be clear-headed. And one of the hardest decisions was leaving Los Angeles because this is where my child is. Mm -hmm. And I have to make this impossible decision of do I stay and stay in fight or flight and have my nervous system always be overacting and always looking over my shoulder. And believe me, I tried. I really, really tried mm -hmm. to hunker down and I fought as long as I possibly could. And I was just like, I don't know how to be the best version of myself and to thrive and to fully heal if I don't leave this place. That was one of the hardest moments of realization for me of just like, the only way I can be the best mother mm -hmm. is if I leave. And that's been the hardest. Of course, I still have a wonderful relationship with my child, and I always will, and I will always remain connected with them, and I will see them. But they can't live with me all the time. We have to live in different states now. And I don't feel like I had a lot of understanding and compassion in that area. But all that being said, once I, again, just had to think about the things I could control and make peace with the things that I couldn't, forgive myself for the things I couldn't control or the things I felt like I couldn't overcome or wasn't strong enough to overcome. Be like, no, you know what? A lot of this isn't your fault. And all you can do is the best that you can with, mm -hmm. with the situation that you have. Be your best self. Be the best mom you can be. And that's being as healthy and happy. And also showing my child that you don't have to stay in unhappy and unsafe situations. Yeah. Yeah. I want them to be happy in their best selves too. So I hope one day they understand why I felt like I couldn't stay. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have been in the same situation. And my heart goes out to all of them. It's, it's, a, it's an awful position to be in. However, the other side of the coin, I'm happier than I've maybe ever been in my life. Mm -hmm. And that took a lot of work, a lot of consistency. Because for so long, you're chipping away at your trauma. You're trying to relearn how to move through the world in a healthy way and reparent yourself and make sense of your life. And it feels like when am I going to see the results? You know, when are things going to start feeling normal? When is it going to stop feeling like a constant battle, mm -hmm. a constant fight? A, mm -hmm. I'm constantly having to monitor myself. And now I feel like, you know, my grip is loosening a little bit and I feel relaxed in my body and in myself. I trust myself. I trust my instincts. And I think a lot of that came from being alone, really, really hard. hard to do and really sitting with myself in the uncomfortability, yeah. in the loneliness, in the grief and waiting through it and just letting it take as long as it needs to take. And now I do feel a sense of peace and a sense of calm and capable of being in happy, healthy relationships. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I'm a better mom and, mm -hmm. and I, I'm more present with people. Mm -hmm, I feel mm -hmm. like I can be there for people more. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I'm not so caught up in all of my stuff yeah. that I have nothing mm -hmm. to give anybody mm -hmm. else because mm -hmm. I'm just trying to survive, you know. And so like feel like I'm at 
sort of the light at the end of the tunnel. And I armed myself with enough tools now that, like, I know how resilient I am. And, like, you know, I think they say there's, like, post-traumatic stress, but there's also post-traumatic resilience. And, Absolutely. Like, I definitely feel like that. And now all I want to do is what you're doing, uh, which is now I just want to try to help other people and draw right. attention to it and just keep learning. But... I just want to kind of hide. Like I, That's understandable. It's funny because some of the naysayers, they'll say, like, well, they're just doing this for money and attention. And it's funny because, like, I'm hemorrhaging money and all I want to do is, is hide. Hide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's made me pay more attention to the things that I really feel like matter in life, which are safety and connection yep. and love and family and, like— just kind of a simple life. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, my healing journey is, is good. There's still really difficult things, but I do feel like I'm doing my best and I do feel like I'm happy. I'm like, yeah, feeling safe in my body again. How would you compare how you were doing before speaking out versus your life now? I felt like a prisoner yeah. in my body mm-hmm. and, in my, mm-hmm. and in my mind. Yeah, it just felt like I was a prisoner of my trauma, my nervous system, my PTSD. And it just felt like an avalanche and a deep hole that I was never going to get out of. And I felt crazy. Like, you're watching the world go on without you and you're being left behind and you're kind of left questioning, like, why did all these things have to happen? Why did this have to be harder? Why do I have to sort through all of this now? And why am I left with the wreckage? And why does nobody believe me? (laughs) It's one of the reasons why one of my triggers is calling me crazy. Of course. Because... I feel like I've been made to feel that way for so long. It was horrifying. I couldn't sleep. I would act out. I, I definitely like was in a bit of like a thrill-seeking phase for a second, especially when I was really disassociated in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It was just like, how can I feel something? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a little all over the place. I think I th- it, it definitely hurt my job. I wasn't always able to show up for work. I would get sick a lot easier. Some days I would show up to do a photo shoot and just being in front of the camera was too triggering. And like mm-hmm. I would just like break down in tears and have to leave. It's a hard thing to explain to people. And it's hard to keep your reputation intact when you're going through that and people don't know what's happening. They just think you're unreliable or felt like that for a while. And I think I, think I do still fight against some of that in the industry, I think. Mm-hmm. We need a more trauma-informed world. And to the radical acceptance is, you know, the radical acceptance, these folks with these personalities don't change and these relationships don't change. But the radical acceptance is also about ourselves, is I've been through something and I need to hold myself close. I need to care for myself. Everyone who's ever gone through one of these relationships has a very similar set of reactions. And you mm-hmm. know why? Because that's how human beings react yeah. when their reality is stolen and they are invalidated and they are not seen and they are exploited and they are taken advantage of. A finite, consistent set of reactions. And since that's the case and it's happening to all of us, you can keep calling people crazy all you want for as long as you want. It's just not true. It's utter devastation. It's utter devastation. It does kill people. And I've had far too many documented cases of people sharing me, people 100%. who have ended their lives, especially people who don't have a lot of support. Exactly. And that's why I consider myself one of the lucky ones. And mm-hmm. I almost died multiple times. I tried to kill myself twice. It, it, it could have easily been me. And I have much more privilege mm-hmm. than things at my disposal. And so that's, when, that's something so terrifying mm-hmm. to me to think about. 
how do people fight this without money? How do people fight they this don't. without mental health support? They how don't. do people survive this? They, li- they don't. Uh, there's people who are suffering and struggling out of financial necessity. Mm-hmm. They have to stay out of cultural yeah. necessity. They have to stay out of safety necessity. They have to stay, stay. There's not a day you could not open up the news somewhere and find out that one more person was killed yeah. because they tried to leave. An yeah. abusive relationship. They tried to leave. People don't get it. And even it's not just the or survivors getting it. why do you just leave? It. You're assuming everybody has uh, a place they, to go. No, they not only do they not, they, do they not have a place to go. Somebody's done such a number on your brain. But Evan, frankly, it's not just about the survivors understanding what's happening to them. But it's the people out there where they could get this. They could be that voice that says, I believe you. How can I be here for you? I hear you. I see you. You may not be ready to go. And I understand that. And I'm here waiting for you on the other side and alongside you as you go through this. Mm -hmm. That's what people need to do is we need to educate people just as much on how to be supporters and not naysayers. Yeah. I cannot thank you enough. Do you have any other questions for me? Well, you kind of answered some of them like, like this doesn't change. (laughs) <laughs> Let me put it this way. You know, when you and I leave here today, might I see a unicorn galloping down the road I drive? <laughs> I suppose. Sure. There's always Maybe a chance. There's always a chance. <laughs> Tell you this. You'd have to have an extraordinarily motivated individual who has enough support on the outside of therapy, who has access to the highest quality therapy, probably multiple times a week for many years. We're talking six figures now that you've got available for therapy, Mm -hmm. probably over time, that you are able to engage in some self-reflection on what you did to someone, all that stuff, all those conditions present, and you might be able to make a horse race out of this. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this, I've been doing this for about 25 years, once, maybe twice. And what I have seen in some cases where a person says, oh, in order to be good at a relationship, I need to do this whole empathy thing and self-aware thing and kind of be nice for the, to them thing and listen to their problems thing. What I've seen more often is, I don't want to hurt anyone. I'm not a bad person, but I don't want to do that other stuff. So I'm going to cut bait. I consider that a win, but that person's personality has never changed. It's, right. Just you see what I'm saying? That's yeah. it. So that's where... It doesn't really change. It's never going to evolve into healthy. So that's what I mean. These are tough things. Tell people, I've got a personality. It's not going to change. (laughs) Is it really realistic for me to expect that someone else's will? So, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Evan. Thank Thank you you. for bringing your story. That's why I keep talking. Yeah, you you have to keep talking. Yeah. And your story reminds people that there is healing. I think that that's the big, important piece to take away. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Evan. First, narcissistic and abusive relationships can leave us feeling stuck in time. And as people come out of them, we'll often feel like they lost years in their psychological development. These types of relationships offer no place for growth. Evan shares that this was the case in her relationship. When all of your resources go towards survival and just getting through the day, it can slow psychological growth way down, which only adds to the grief and struggles people face when they leave these one-sided and harmful relationships. Next, One thing Evan shared was that as she reflected on that time and relationship, 
that it is difficult to look back at her life. And many survivors find that just having to look at images of themselves from the time they were in these relationships leave them sad and regretful. In this way, narcissistic relationships really do steal time. And for people in more severely narcissistic abusive relationships, there is so much pain in revisiting these relationships. And as such, the time and the memories can get set aside to avoid the pain. For our next takeaway, as she shared her story, Evan said that after she got out of her relationship, she distanced herself from her experience for nearly eight years. And in her quest for what felt like a normal life, she had not only distanced herself, but attempted to avoid dealing with all that had happened. Unfortunately, we cannot outrun our pain, grieving, processing the trauma and losses, and talking it through are all crucial. While routine and a normal life can create a sense of safety, without addressing trauma and having experiences validated, it can and will show up in many ways or be brought up by triggering experiences. Evan had this happen on film and television sets and found that it affected her professionally. Trauma-informed therapy as a place to work through these kinds of experiences is essential. In this next takeaway, a trauma bond can be generated by a partner who not only manipulates and gaslights, but Evan shares how her partner took the stance of, it's us against the world, casting them as misunderstood misfits in a world that wanted to ostracize them. By creating a bond in this way, it can not only make a manipulative partner feel like an ally, but further cement this dangerous dynamic of isolation. Next, we have discussed coercive control in multiple episodes of Navigating Narcissism. But one dynamic Evan highlighted in her relationship was her partner getting in her face repeatedly until she would agree just to make it stop. This dynamic can have a gaslighting feel to it, but in some ways it conforms to something called negative reinforcement, which is when a person is rewarded for a behavior by something aversive being taken away. Evan would give in to her partner's criticisms and accusations, even if they were wrong. It would make his relentless rage stop, and the relief of that would mean that she would do it again in the future. This can create a treacherous dynamic where it looks to the world that the person being harmed in the relationship is agreeing with the abusive person, when in fact, they are just capitulating and giving in to make the verbal abuse stop. And for our last takeaway, as Evan shared what worked for her in her healing, she highlighted trusting herself, time alone, allowing herself to process the grief, being patient, and giving it time. And this culminated slowly into her feeling safer in her own mind. After her relationship, Evan entered another relationship and became a mother. And she has found, like many, that motherhood also becomes instrumental to healing. Time alone is often crucial to processing grief. And while it can be scary to be alone with these feelings and sensations, it is often the only path forward. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.